This is Searching for Rachel Antonio. It's a podcast about a missing girl and a quest for answers. It's brought to you by the Courier Mail. I'm David Murray. Episode 3, Alibi. She said, don't worry, if I'm not home, I've got money for the taxi. At 9.30, I knew then she should have been home. I wish to talk to you with respect to the disappearance of a young girl named Rachel Joy Antonio. Can I get you to state your form correct name for me, please? Uh, Robert Paul Hitch. Have you ever been involved in a sexual relationship with Rachel Antonio? I really care about him. I can honestly say I think I love him. This police have located a number of pages of paper with handwriting on them which we believe to be written by Rachel. I think we know who's not telling the truth about this, this poor young girl. I'm really worried that our relationship will be over. I'm surprised, yeah. Why would she write something like that? If you talk to most people, they will say, oh yeah, the police just decided that was it. They just decided he was guilty. We're from the uh, Courier Mail. You got a sec? <laughs> so what do you think's happened to her? Can touch her a bin. I can take her to the bin. We're no closer to knowing than we were the day after she disappeared. At about 6pm on Anzac Day 1998, Rachel Antonio was dropped off at a cinema by her mum. Rachel lived in Bowen in North Queensland and she was 16 years old. As we've discussed in previous episodes, Rachel didn't make the movies that night and she didn't make it home. She has never been found and her family has had no justice, not even a body to bury. Around the same time Rachel was being dropped off at the cinema, About five kilometres away, at the Hitch household, guests were starting to arrive. As you might recall, Robert Hitch would become the main suspect in Rachel's disappearance. At the time, he was 25 years old. He was a lifeguard, and he was captain of the Bowen Surf Lifesaving Club. The night Rachel went missing, his brother, Scott, was having a party. It was for his 18th birthday. It would be a relatively quiet affair, a backyard barbecue at home for about 20 people. About 7pm, Robert Hitch left the gathering to get some ice for the esky and a video for some younger children at the party. He took much longer than expected. In all, he was gone for the best part of an hour. Remember, in a small town like Bowen, most things are only a five-minute drive away. When Robert got home just before 8pm... He wasn't wearing a shirt. So what happened in the time he was away, that crucial period just after police believe Rachel was last seen alive? Well, something unexpected had obviously occurred. It not only delayed Robert, but caused him to return to the party bare-chested. What exactly that unexpected event was depends on who you ask. Robert says that when he went out that night, his car broke down. It delayed him and dirtied his shirt. He says he did not see Rachel Antonio at all. Police thought otherwise, and some background here. Robert was charged with Rachel's murder. He was convicted of manslaughter, but after an appeal, he was sent to a retrial, and he was found not guilty. That was in 2001. 
Then a coroner, David O'Connell, looked at the case again. In July of this year, he found that when Robert left the party to get the video, he went and met Rachel. The coroner found Rachel died at Robert's hands and that he then returned to the party. However, it doesn't mean that Robert will be charged again. He could only be charged if some new and compelling evidence emerged. Robert has always denied having anything to do with Rachel's disappearance. I stress here also that Robert is appealing the coroner's findings. He says they're wrong. He wants them overturned and that may well happen. So let's look at what we know. Robert gave police his version of events at the Bowen station in the days after Rachel went missing. He didn't have to talk to police. He wasn't under arrest, but he spoke to them anyway. I had a shower, got dressed, and at six o'clock, the uh, people started to turn up. They all sat around and were talking in the lounge room, and Scott went to pick up the girls uh, before six. At about uh, at seven o'clock, because uh, Scott was supposed to pick up a bag of ice. Mum said to me, yeah, could you go pick up a bag of ice? And I said, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I'll go pick up a video for the kids as well. On the way into town, the car stopped. Uh, it stalled just before um, oh, my girlfriend's house. At around the same time Robert left his brother's party to get the ice and a video, Rachel was seen walking away from the cinema at Queen's Beach. This is a sighting police say was the last time Rachel was seen alive. Rachel told people she was going to meet Robert, that she'd faked a pregnancy, and they were going to talk about it that night. She said she'd tell her mum she was going to the movies, but really she was going to see Robert. Robert has always denied that they had an intimate relationship. He says his car first broke down on the way to the video store. The engine just cut off, so he pulled to the side of the road. He said this happened at an area called Muller's Lagoon. In Bowen, Rachel's parents, Ian and Cheryl Antonio, took me for a drive to go through the events of the night Rachel disappeared. We started at Robert Street and went from there. According to him, just conked out about here. So he's, let him, he's just taken his foot off her dial down and he's tried to get in here. This is where he's saying, he broke down. Right here. Robert told police he popped his bonnet and fumbled around. He was not mechanically minded, so he said he moved some leads and searched for the fuel filter. He thought that might be the problem. On my dad's ute, car used to stop like that quite a bit, and uh, all he used to do is just give the fuel filter a shake and, uh, and leave the car alone a bit. And uh, I did that. I tried, tried to find a fuel filter. I couldn't find it because I've never really you know, had much time underneath the bottom of the car. Robert says while he was doing this, he got grease on his T-shirt. It was a white Nike shirt. It had a swoosh on the front. He took it off and tossed it in the passenger footwell. He had denim shorts on and was wearing reef sandals. The first estimate was he was only here for a very short time, four or five minutes. The second time they asked him, they got a bit longer and a bit longer and a bit longer. In the end, I think they got him up to about 20 minutes to half an hour. And he was agreeing, yeah, it could have been half an hour. The car started again and he drove to video 2000. Video store manager Christine Myers told police she knew Robert as a customer. He was usually fairly well dressed. 
She wasn't going to forget the night the fit lifesaver came in with no shirt on. I found Christine in Townsville, where she now lives. It was a, a cooler night, so, you know, the sort of someone comes in without a shirt on when everyone else has got a jumper on, you sort of notice it, that's all. I have to say here, it does strike me as a little odd that you choose to ditch your shirt and walk into a shop bare-chested just because you got a bit of grease on it. I would always choose a greasy shirt over no shirt, but then again, I'm not a fit young lifesaver. Video shop manager Christine Myers told police Robert was in the store for no more than three or four minutes. She said he was more or less straight in and straight out. He hired the movie Toy Story. She didn't remember any grease on him. Yeah, we were asked, but I don't think I noticed anything. They had dirt on them, anything. Yeah. I think that brought up at the trial. One other interesting point here is that Christine Myers insisted Robert was wearing long jeans, not denim shorts. She told police this twice, saying she was sure of it. Was it possible Robert had different pants on than the ones he said he was wearing? The store's computer system recorded the time he rented the movie. It was 7.39pm. Like the police, I timed how long it takes to drive straight from Robert's home to the video store. It's about six minutes. If he left home at 7pm and was in the store for only a few minutes, that leaves a gap of about half an hour. Either his car had broken down or he was somewhere else. While you're trying to find the fuel filter, he got that much grease in his hands that he wiped it on his shirt and put his shirt under his seat. Turned up at the video store with really clean hands. She remembers she put the money in his hands because she said she was very particular because a lot of tomato pickers would go in with dirty hands. If they so had dirty hands, she'd stick the money on, on the, the counter. But if you want clean hands, she'd put the change he was in clean. his hand. He was clean. Police asked Robert a lot of questions about the grease. Do you believe your hands, the amount of grease or oil in your hands was uh, substantial or not? No, it, was, oh, it, was, it wasn't caked on. No. Was, you know, do you wash any time between um, the car breaking down the first time and the video shop? Just on, wipe your hands on the... Uh, Shirt that's banded. Didn't wash the tap at all? No. no. Okay. We've obtained a statement from the lady at the video shop, uh, and she was of the opinion that um, when you came in to get the video, you were very clean, and in fact, she said she thought it looked like just come out of the shower. Have you anything to say to that? No, apart from the fact that I wiped my hands on the shirt. No one saw this first breakdown, or at least no one has ever come forward. One of the families at the party, the Greenoffs, had to leave early to get to a soccer match. They told police they drove straight past the spot on Soldiers Road at Muller's Lagoon where Robert said he broke down the first time. They didn't see him. Dad Stuart Greenoff said he would have noticed if Robert's car was on the side of the road with the bonnet up. This is where it gets down to minutes, even seconds. The Greenoff said they left the party at 7.30pm. They were paying close attention to the time because they didn't want to be late for the 8pm soccer match. If Robert's story is right, he must have restarted his car 
and driven off only moments before the Greenoffs drove past. Was Robert desperately unlucky that the Greenoffs had not left earlier and seen him there? Robert told police his car broke down a second time on his way home. Got down to near a long bushy bay road near the old sailing club bit before that and the car stopped again. I um, you know, proceeded to do exactly the same thing again but I've got, you know, still got a bit more grease on me and uh, I just I went back to start the car and uh, it started again so I just you know, jumped back in the car and took off home. This time, in the area where he said it happened, there was a resident called Kathleen Hansen at home. She saw a car turn into a side street and stop outside her mum's place, which was just across the road from her own home. Kathleen was paying close attention to the comings and goings because her mum was away and she was worried about burglars. The car left soon after. The coroner's view on this is Robert's car did not break down. He believes Robert stopped here to put grease on his hands and shorts to back up a cover story for why he was away from the party for so long. Meanwhile, people at the party were starting to ask where Robert was. When he arrived home just before 8pm without a shirt, he told them about his car trouble. His mum, Sheila, his sister, Colleen, girlfriend, Susan Cummins, and another guest, truck driver, Dennis Ingram, all said they saw grease on his hands. The shirt was quite greasy, so I just you know, didn't bother and got inside, looked at my shorts, had a bit of grease in my shorts. And um, I went into the bathroom, because we had guests here, I didn't want to uh, strip off in front of them. And I told my sister that she you know, grabbed me some clothes to get changed into. Robert then changed into fresh clothes and rejoined the party. He'd forgotten to buy the ice. Guests said Robert seemed completely normal. One said he was happy. He had a beer and he ate some food. Around midnight he gave his girlfriend Susan Cummins a lift home from the party. There were other cars at the house but he used his, the one that had broken down twice earlier in the night. He wasn't gone long. A family friend who was staying over got up at about 1am and asked him for some Panadol. She said he was really nervous, but it might have just been because he was coming out of the bathroom and he was in his undies. The next morning, the hitcher's next-door neighbour, Anne Blomley, looked out her window and saw Robert in the street. In Bowen, I went and saw Anne. We got up about 7 o'clock, and I went to open the door here about half past 7, and here's Robert coming down the hill without his shirt and out and no shoes on. Now, that's not like Robert. You never saw him like that. So I yelled out to Anne. So I was sitting there, I could see him coming down the hill. Mm-hmm. He's got no shoes on, which was, see, he was a, a runner, you know, like my son. He used to do uh, triathlons and all that sort of thing. And he was always dressed up to the hilt. And to see Robert without a shirt on. The podcast Faith on Trial looks into Hillsong, both in Australia and the U.S., and takes both the listener and hosts on unexpected twists and turns in the story of Brian Houston and the singing preachers. There are two incidents involving Pastor Brian. The Australian journalists uncovered a litany of alleged criminal behavior in the megachurch. Financial gifts were being given to the leaders of the church. Listen to Faith on Trial Hillsong ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts today or wherever you get your podcasts. Without shoes on was really unusual. 
Robert said he had been training. Coroner David O'Connell had this to say about the sighting, and this is a quote. Why a person who has been at an 18th birthday party and awake at 1am would get up early to train without wearing appropriate clothing before then going to a complete day of patrolling as a lifesaver is very perplexing. I would suggest bizarre. The coroner's view was that after his brother's party, after ensuring everyone else at his house had fallen asleep, Robert slipped away from the home. He thought Robert probably took a short walk to Kings Beach or nearby, where Rachel's body likely then lay. The coroner said, How he has then disposed of her body, I am unable to determine. He said maybe Robert dug a shallow grave, or maybe, as an accomplished surf lifesaver, he swam the body out to sea. Coroner O'Connell found, and I quote, It is of persuasive significance to me that Mr Hitch was seen by a neighbour returning home at about 7.30am on the morning after the party. Robert is appealing the coroner's decision. Anne tells me things have not been good between her and the Hitches since she told police what she saw. It didn't help that the young police constable who took her original statement got it wrong, writing that she'd seen Robert walking away from home in the morning rather than towards home. She had to correct the statement, but it looked like she'd changed her story. Robert's mum, Sheila Hitch, told police she found Robert's grease-stained shorts in the washing basket the morning after Rachel went missing, but she couldn't find his shirt. In her police statement, she says... He told me the shirt was in the car. Robert showed me the shirt. It was covered in grease. I knew that I couldn't get it clean, so he left it in the car for a rag. She soaked the shorts in nappy sand and water and then washed them. Robert's girlfriend, Susan Cummins, told police he drove her to the beach on the Sunday morning, the day after Rachel went missing. She said when they got there, Robert showed her the Nike T-shirt. It had grease smudged on it like someone had wiped their hands over the stomach area. She said she did not see any blood. This is all important because, as discussed earlier, Robert's shirt has never been found. Robert said he left it in his car, but when police searched the car, they say it wasn't there. I went to Susan's home to try to talk to her about what she saw. She was interviewed by police. She was questioned by the Queensland Crime Commission when it investigated the case, and she gave evidence at Robert's trials. She has never changed her story about the shirt, swearing it is the truth. Hi. Well, how are you going? Hello. I'm Dave Murray. I'm a journalist at Eight Career Mail. Yep. Sing of a Susan. No, thanks. Police did retrieve Robert's shorts and the reef sandals he was wearing the night Rachel went missing. And this is where there was another significant development. Tests showed tiny stains on the strap of one of his sandals appeared to be droplets of blood. At first there was a presumptive screening test and this indicated the presence of blood. But this type of test can return a positive result from a range of substances, such as vegetables. So more testing was needed. A forensic biologist, Marianne Hatfield, cut fibres from the stain area and retrieved DNA. It was consistent with Rachel's DNA. The inference was Rachel's blood was on Robert Hitch's sandals. Robert could not explain the presence of blood, 
He said it may have been from Rachel injuring herself at Lifesaver training. At the inquest, for the first time on record, Robert claimed the sandals were his brother's. Coroner David O'Connell concluded this explanation was, and I quote, a desperate and very unconvincing attempt by Mr Hitch to deflect suspicion. The coroner found the blood was from the night Rachel went missing. He said he was able to come to this conclusion easily because in his view, Robert was untruthful in other evidence. As I've said, Robert is appealing the coroner's findings and they may well be overturned. While police were poring over Robert's alibi, they were also trying to piece together Rachel's night. She told her mum she was going to the movies, but she never showed up at Bowen's historic Summer Garden Cinema. Owner Ben DeLuca is certain of that. He knew Rachel and would have remembered if she'd been among the handful of patrons who turned up at the cinema that night. Hi, yeah, Dave Murray from, uh, from the Courier Mail. Courier Mail? Yeah. Well, the Courier Mail one with me. Wow. Come on, come, come inside. Yeah, cheers. People travel from all over the region for the old world experience of watching a movie at the Summer Garden Cinema. It began life as an open air theatre back in 1948, and Ben has owned it for nearly 55 years. It had a brush with fame in 2007. Back then, stars Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman arrived in Bowen to shoot scenes for the epic movie Australia. It was the biggest thing that had ever happened in Bowen. Each night, director Baz Luhrmann would retreat to the Summer Garden to watch the raw footage of the day's filming. Ben remembers this highlight as well as he remembers the more mundane goings-on at the Summer Garden during more than half a century running the place. He keeps meticulous records and tells me nine people bought tickets to see Goodwill Hunting on Anzac Day 1998. That was a movie Rachel was meant to go and see. She was a customer here. She was a patron. She did come, not real regular, but she did come. We knew her. We we keep saying, you know, that well, that um, had she have come to the movies, she'd have been safe. Ben tells me he thinks the police investigation could have been handled better. He says his brother Steve collected Bowen's rubbish at the time. And he says Steve offered to halt operations so that police could search the bins. He says police didn't take his brother up on that offer at the time. All the same, he doesn't think Robert was involved in Rachel's disappearance. Oh, I don't mind Robert. Yeah, Robert's, uh, you know, I've known him since he was that high, you know. Robert's a bit slow. That's why we've never ever believed that he would have done something really bad to um, Rachel. I've never seen him angry, violent or any other thing, even as a child. So DeLuca, like others in Bowen, simply thinks Robert doesn't have it in him to do what he's been accused of. Ben DeLuca's mention of the town rubbish immediately got my interest. Remember, in episode one, I discussed how the Bowen dump has never been searched. It's the one obvious place police have not looked. Ian Antonio told me in the first episode his theory Rachel's body was put in a skip and taken to the dump. He thinks her body is still there today. At the Summer Garden Cinema, I asked Ben where his brother was these days. He said Steve still lived in Bowen, so I drove straight to his house. 
Yeah. Well, do you want to come and sit down? Yeah, do you mind? No, not at all. I'm over the office. Steve's office is a backyard table next to his fruit trees. A lot of what, what we learned about this case was, was just rumour. I actually went to the police and said, I'm pretty sure that I saw Rachel Antonio. Um, this is on the Monday morning. And uh, anyway, it turned out that that was not the girl I saw. But they didn't follow up on it. No, nobody, nobody came and asked me any more about it. Steve confirms he did collect Bowen's rubbish when Rachel went missing. He had his own business at the time, and it was one of two companies that picked up all the wheelie bins and skips in town. But when I asked if he offered to stop emptying the bins when Rachel disappeared, as his brother had suggested, he's adamant he didn't. No, that's not true, because um, it, uh, I, wasn't asked, I wasn't asked about the rubbish uh, until the inquest. Our chat is still really interesting. Steve tells me his truck was a front loader. He'd spear the bins with the forks, lift them over his head, a door opened and it was all dropped into the container behind him. Some of those bins are, uh, you know, sort of four cubic metre in, uh, uh, in capacity and uh, so you can get some pretty large objects in them without even knowing what's there. When his truck was full, he'd drive to the dump, offload the rubbish and go and pick up more bins. When you tip those industrial bins, you, you don't generally see what's inside them. If, uh, if a body was in there, I'd, I'd be very unlikely to ever see it. Steve says he had the contract to empty all the skips at the boat harbour. That's the area Ian Antonio was really interested in, where he thought his daughter's body might have been taken, where he took me and showed me a skip, which he said was unlocked and could have been used by anyone. So when you drove into that area, that boat harbour area, um, to collect the industrial bins, mm. were they ever locked? No. Just so anyone could put anything in there, basically. Yeah, and they did. There was, there were some some business people over town thought that it was fair game. I wanted to go for a drive to the Bowen Tip, and Steve was kind enough to come along as a guide. It's about ten minutes out of town. At the tip, we didn't get past the front gate. The attendant there was polite, but she said we'd need formal approval to look around. We just wanted to see, yeah, where, where the rubbish is actually dumped and that kind of stuff. So where would we go? Can we go Have safely? Have you asked the council's permission? No, of course not. <laughs> wow, so that, that's sort of like a problem. Yeah. Because it's a council facility, and I really can't let you go wandering around here without their permission. I've been thinking a lot about the dump theory, and I'll tell you one reason why. In 2010, on Queensland's Sunshine Coast, a woman called Justine Jones went missing. Justine was 22 years old. My understanding of the case is police knew their suspect, Justine's former lover, had limited time to dispose of her body. So they searched the Nambour tip, and eight days later, they found her remains. Her killer, Richard Coburn, had put her body in a wheelie bin near her unit. The bin was emptied and her body taken to the dump with the rest of the rubbish. What's to say that couldn't have happened to Rachel?
Right about now, if you're weighing up Robert's alibi, there's something important you need to know. His story was of two unexplained breakdowns on the night Rachel vanished. He says the car just conked out. Then he was able to restart it after a period of time. Well, it's not as random as it might sound. It turns out that particular make and model of car that Robert drove that night, a 1988 Ford Falcon EA sedan, did have a known fault that could cause it to break down unexpectedly. A veteran Ford mechanic, Dennis Staples, was contacted by Robert's defence barrister, Harvey Walters. Staples spent 37 years with Ford before leaving the company in 1998. He told Robert's lawyer that model of car had experienced a large number of problems with what's called the Hall sensor. It's an electronic device involved in the car's ignition system. Customers would report driving along and then suddenly the car would just cut out. Ten minutes later, it might start again. Staples would estimate as many as nine in ten of the cars would have an ignition failure at some stage. It was fixed by replacing the hall sensor. What Robert had described was entirely consistent with his Falcon's known fault, right down to him saying the lights remained on when he broke down. Robert voluntarily surrendered his car to police four days after Rachel went missing. Police ran the engine for hours and could not replicate the fault. But the Ford mechanic, Dennis Staples, said it was unpredictable and could not be tested for. Robert also had evidence in his favour from his mum and from guests at his brother's 18th birthday party. Robert's mum, Sheila, passed away recently. But she'd said Robert only left the party because she'd asked him to get ice. This would mean Robert had no plans to go and meet Rachel the night she went missing. A party guest, Carol Sinclair, also told police that Sheila had insisted Robert go and get the ice. In the end, of course, Robert actually forgot to buy ice, arriving back home with just a video after being absent for around an hour. Robert had volunteered to go and get this video for the kids at the party. Was it his plan all along to use the video as an excuse to leave and meet Rachel? His mum's request for ice may have been just a convenient coincidence. Or was there never any plan to meet Rachel, as he's insisted all along? But Robert's movements weren't the only curious ones that night. Next time on Searching for Rachel Antonio, The Pool Man and Other Mysteries. The storeroom he spent a lot of time in, he just used to disappear lots. He was a very strange man. There was another completely different scenario which was never, ever gone down by the police. Are you ready to get an inside look at crime from someone who has investigated some of Australia's worst crimes? It was like Aladdin's cave. The luminol found bloodied footprints and bloodied handprints on a wall. So it's yeah. just like a horror movie. Former homicide detective Gary Jubilant sits down with cops, crims, addicts, victims, small-time cheats and big-town lawyers as they tell their incredible stories. My house got raided. Next thing you know, I got bail refused. Next thing you know, I'm on a truck yeah. to Parkley Prison. Listen to I Catch Killers early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts today or wherever you get your podcasts.